0: Well, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's really good to see all of you uh, coming out, braving the cold, to be in the warmth of God's presence uh, here on this uh, cold Sunday. And we are offering extra indulgence points for those of you who made it, because it took extra work to get here. Now, I really just appreciate people who don't care what the weather is, and you just make it out to gather together. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, the Bible says, and so we're here to get today. And there's such a sweet presence of God in this place. Also, uh, if you didn't fill out the survey last week, we had a demographic survey that we do. uh, And if you weren't here uh, or for any other reason didn't fill it out, for example, if you thought it was maybe one survey for family and so you just count on your wife to fill it out for both of you, uh uh-uh. We want every individual to fill that out. So if you didn't do that, we just stop at the the visitor's table or the the information table on the gathering area and, and pick up one of those forms. It'll take you two minutes, maybe less. Uh, and if it, it really is helpful to us as we're making ministry decisions, and and parishioners, you're invited to be a part of this. Go on the website and there's a survey for you to fill out as well. And we really encourage you uh, to do that. Final thing is this is Black History Month, and and uh, and it, 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 to that end, uh, Norm and I uh, have are, have written some essays. We're writing one essay a week together uh, as a collaborative effort, just reflecting on reconciliation in the kingdom. And if you'd like to f- read those essays. Um, they're short, uh, but just get on the website. You can find them there, or if you don't have a computer, uh, we have them printed out uh, at the information table and stop and pick those up. Alrighty there, then. Let's get into the Word. You want to get in the Word? Yeah. Are you ready to do some thinking? Yeah. You better be, because this is one of those. Thinking messages. We're, we're, we're picking up where we left off last week. This is a two-part message. This is the second part. And so I'm entitling this Scorpions, Eggs, and Prayer, Part 2. Because last week was Scorpions, Eggs, and Prayer, Part 1. And we're reading from the book of Luke, of course, chapter 11, uh, verses 5 through 13. This uh, section here is the third time we've chewed on this. Uh, It it is part of a longer section where Jesus is answering the question or the request of the disciples uh, to be taught how to pray. And so he gave them the Lord's Prayer to teach them the content of what to pray, and now he's teaching them the mindset to have when they pray. Okay, so it's all about prayer. Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 5, I'm reading from the TNIV version. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight. And you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I've got nothing to set before him. This is very embarrassing. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, and the connotation there is your shameless persistence, you just won't go away, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need just to get you off his back. Now, this is, a par- this is a teaching not about what God is like, but rather a teaching about how we're to pray. So I say to you, Jesus says, ask, ask with this persistence and it will be given to you. Seek with this persistence and you will find. Knock with that kind of pers- uh, persistence and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And those who seek fine and to those who knock the door will eventually be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son wants a fish, is going to give him a snake instead? Or if your kid says, Dad, give me an egg for breakfast, who's going to give him a scorpion? Come on. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, in whom there is no evil, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Thus ends the reading of the word this morning. Let us pray. Father, you are the giver of every good gift. You use a lot of means to bring those gifts to us, but they ultimately come from you. You're an egg-giving God, not a scorpion-giving God. God, you've given us the good gift of our minds. Lord, help us to use them here this morning. And you've given us the good gift of your word. Help us to receive it here this morning. And we ask you to give us the good gift of the Holy Spirit, to anoint this message and give it an authority that doesn't come from me, an authority to build the kingdom in our lives, to make us fully devoted, authentic, radical kingdom revolutionaries. Do it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 So two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of prayer and the urgency of prayer, how more things hang on prayer. According to Scripture, more things hang on prayer than any other single human activity. Prayer is not a religious thing that you do. It's not fancy. There's no special language or special posture. It's just talking to God. And we're going to be cultivating a life where we do that all day long. Pray continually. Talk to God. Invite God into every event in in your life. It makes a difference. But then last week, we started this discussion that will continue this morning. Uh, and, and, And we're just honestly, as human beings, addressing this question. If prayer really has the power that the Bible says it has, and if Jesus is telling the truth here in this teaching, and of course he is, then why does it seem that we sometimes knock and the door is not opened? We sometimes ask and we don't receive. In fact, why does it seem, let's be honest, that sometimes we ask for an egg, but instead we get a scorpion? And we saw last week that the two most common answers that Christians give is that, well, was God's will to give a scorpion rather than an egg. That's just what God's will. God's will determines everything. Or some would say, no, no, God only gives eggs, so if you've got a scorpion, it's because you lack faith. It's either God's fault or it's your fault. And what we tried to show last week is that those two answers are unbiblical and, and, and too simplistic. And they end up painting a bad picture of God and, and damaging people. And so we've got to avoid formulas. And I'm going to continue that thought here this morning. My goal just put all the cards on the table. My goal is to free us from a magical view of prayer without at all compromising our confidence in the power of prayer. And my goal is to help us realize our massive ignorance about how this whole thing works. Prayer is the easiest thing in the world to do, but it's impossible to understand once you begin to appreciate the complexity of the universe. And I want us to realize that our, our massive ignorance so that we don't get sucked into formulating theology that puts things in a box, because that always ends up damaging people. We have to get very used to saying, I don't know. So last week I talked about three variables that affect uh, the impact that prayer has that affect what comes to pass. God's will, our faith, and, and free agents. And I'm going to cover those three variables again and go a little deeper with them. And then I'm going to add on three other variables just so we realize how many things are operating in this world in order to appreciate how much we don't know, in order to free us from thinking that we're supposed to know, in order to free us from formulaic magical theology. Okay, here we go. Variable number one, as we talked about last week, is simply God's will. God's will. John says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God's will is an all-important variable in affecting what comes to pass in response to prayer. It's not the only variable, but it is an all-important one. The central purpose of prayer, which is also the central purpose for kingdom living, is to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That's our job description, and that's what prayer is about. So if we're praying in ways that are not consistent with that, well, it's obviously going to affect the power of prayer to bring things to pass. And I say that because it's my impression that a lot of people see God as sort of a cosmic Santa Claus, and prayer is their private little wish list. Sometimes when when people pray, they pray like, like Lucy on Charlie Brown's Christmas with her list of, here's what I want, Santa Claus. I've been a good girl, and boom, she gives her list, and it's all about me. They pray. Well, for those of you who are over fifty, you might get this analogy. They pray Janis Joplin prayers. (laughs) Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Remember that song. I never thought she could sing with beans. but uh, Oh, Lord, would you buy me? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends or something like that. Yeah, yeah, some of you guys are in the same era. Uh, well, it's, it's like, God, give me, I, here's what I want, God. I want that new house. I want a bigger house. I want a new car. I want a faster car. I want more cars. I want that second cabin, and I want that Learjet. Why not a Learjet? I'm a king's kid. I deserve a Learjet. And, and teach me how to fly while you're at it. And, and, and there's just this, it's, it's all a self-absorbed wish list. Now, God loves to bless his kids. Amen. But see, the purpose of prayer isn't just that. If God were to let himself be come our little, our, our big Santa Claus, our cosmic Santa Claus, and prayer our little wish list, then the purpose of prayer would be defeated. Part of the purpose of prayer in kingdom living is to make us Christ-like, self-sacrificial servants who are content with what we've got. But if God was our Santa Claus and prayer our wish list, then we'd be spoiled silly, and that would defeat the whole purpose of prayer. We've got to pray consistent with God's purpose for prayer and God's purpose for our life, which is not to be self-absorbed, spoiled kids, but rather to serve the world and and to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray, we've got to be asking the question, is this consistent with the will of God? God's will is an all-important variable. But, as I said last week, it's not the only variable. So here's a second one. Warning, warning, warning. At this point, we're going to get a little bit philosophical. Put on your thinking caps and follow me on this one. And if you're visiting or have been at Woodland Hills Church for two years or less, probably you've never heard this before. Uh, And so it might seem weird to you. Just hear me out. That's all I ask is hear me out and let it be a stimulus for, for thinking. The laws of nature are an important variable in affecting what comes to pass in response to prayer. Okay, follow me on this God's goal in creation is for people to learn how to love, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, and to out of that love make morally responsible decisions, morally responsible choices. For us to learn how to love and make morally responsible choices, we have to share a stable physical environment which we can each influence, but which none of us can control. Here's what I mean. We're 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 relating right now, right? We're, there's communication happening right now. I hope um, we're having. I, I'm I'm communicating to you, and in your own way, you're communicating to me. I I'm reading your body language, you know, pro or con, falling asleep, whatever. But but we're communicating. For that to happen, we each have to have the ability to affect our environment, but not control our environment. For example for for me to communicate to you i have to i am a spirit being and i impact my neurons which then impact my vocal cords which then impact my mouth which then imp- impacts the airwaves which then ir- impact your eardrums which then impact your neurons and voila communication takes place i couldn't do that unless i genuinely have the power to affect my environment but To do that, I also have to be able to rely on the predictable laws of nature that govern the behavior of neurons and vocal cords and airwaves and eardrums and then your neurons. I have to rely on the laws of physics. I have to be able to count on the the law of gravity is going to operate the way it always did and the laws of electromagnetic activity is going to keep on operating the way it's always operated and and the laws that govern airwaves are going to continue to operate the way they've always operated. If we lived in a magical world where God would adjust the laws of nature every time we wanted him to, then nothing would be predictable and relating to one another would be impossible. We could not be in an environment that would be conducive to us to learn how to love and make morally responsible choices. Now that doesn't mean that the laws of physics can never be violated because miracles do happen. But it means that miracles must always be the exceptions to the general rule. In fact, that's why they're called miracles. Miracles are exceptional. God has the power to do anything he wants. Got that? God is omnipotent. But it's not a question of God's power. It never is. It's a question of what kind of universe did God create, which is objective for the universe. And if his objective is, among other things, to uh, create people, raise up people who know how to love and make morally responsible choices, he can go around adjusting the laws of nature whatever we might like him to. And it means that the stability of nature, the stability and the predictability of the laws of nature are a strong variable that has to be factored into when we come to understand why does prayer have the power it has when it does and seems not to have the power at other times. Prayer is powerful and effective, but it doesn't magically suspend the laws of nature just because we'd like them to be suspended. It means this. If you go skydiving and irresponsibly forget to put on your parachute the short and desperate prayer that you pray one second after you left the airplane probably is not going to suspend the law of gravity Now may I still pray the prayer but I'm just saying I'm just saying the laws of nature are going to continue to operate the way the laws of nature uh, usually operate so laws of nature are another variable that goes into this here's a third variable we touched on last week let's go a little deeper with it it's faith. Faith. But you got to have faith. Um, sometimes the Bible portrays the faith of a person praying as the all-important variable. For example, uh, Jesus said to the centurion, let it be done for you according to your faith. And his servant was healed. Now here what's interesting is that the, servant, the, the centurion's faith healed his servant. It doesn't say a thing about the servant's faith. For all we know, the guy was an atheist. But the faith of the centurion was sufficient for this prayer to result in his servants being healed. Now, some teachers have come up with a formula. They always do. And the formula is this. Well, this shows us that the faith of the person praying is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter whether the person being prayed for has faith or not. No, Uh, the faith of the person praying, if they have enough faith, then, then, then the other person will be blessed regardless of their lack of faith. The trouble with that and with all formulaic theology is it doesn't work. You can find exceptions to that. In fact, you find a lot of exceptions to that. For example, uh, many times Jesus, after he uh, prayed for someone and, and they were healed, he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith, not mine. Your faith has made you well. And sometimes people's lack of faith prevented them from being made well. For example, in Mark 6, it says there that Jesus was ministering in his own hometown and hardly anything happened. It says, Jesus could do no deed of power there, no miracle, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now now Jesus presumably had perfect faith, yet in some circumstances he couldn't do any miracles because of others' lack of faith. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you ask the question, okay, why why was the faith of a person praying for another sometimes sufficient to heal that other person, without any consideration of their faith, but other times it wasn't sufficient? Why was the the faith of the person being prayed for sometimes irrelevant, but other times very relevant? Why? And the answer to that question is, we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. The universe is just weird, it's complex, it's unfathomable. We don't know why things happen the way they do. But the point of all that is to say this, avoid formulas, avoid magic. Yes, it's an important principle that the person praying needs to have faith. And it's an important principle that the person being prayed for needs to have faith. But you can't ever reduce those principles down to magical formula. Uh, It's a lot more complex than that. So faith is a very important variable. While I'm on the topic of faith, let me say a word about what faith is and what it's not. Many people today seem to assume that faith equals psychological certainty. You have as much faith as you are certain that something's going to happen. So if I have faith that I'm going to be healed, then that means I must be certain that I'm going to be healed. And people who hold this theology of faith sometimes become sort of like the, 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 the proverbial lion in The Wizard of Oz, who, who says, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. They try to convince themselves that something is real. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. And, and they're trying to talk themselves into having a kind of certainty. And they think if they just get certain enough, well, then it will become a reality, I, I read a story several years ago about this dear lady who uh, her doctors told her she couldn't have any children because of some problems with her fallopian tubes or something. And she just believed that it wasn't God's will. And so uh, she, in the name of faith, uh, tried to make herself certain that she was in fact pregnant. And for five years, she wore maternity clothes and told everyone that she was pregnant. Uh, just trying to, you know, uh, confess it, to, to just talk herself into that kind of a reality. If only I believe it enough, it will happen. And boy, do people who hold that view crash hard when they finally have to admit that that's not happening. I, I, I spoke to a young man one time. It was so sad. 19 years old in a rugby accident and uh, uh, paralyzed from the neck down. And I would visit him in the hospital, and he would be telling me, he says, you know what, I'm, I'm able-bodied, I am healed, I am whole in Jesus' name. And I said, okay, dude, but, but you're, you can't move a finger. And not to be a downer here, but I'm just saying, and he would go, no, that's a symptom of the devil. That's an illusion from the devil. It's just a matter of time before the devil's illusion is exposed. And, and it's so hard to deal with that. Like, I don't want to pop his bubble, but on the other hand, I've got to help him start negotiating with reality. And then he hears that as a lack of faith. But when people finally come to the, the, the realization that, you know what, I am paralyzed, man, the, the crashing is vicious. And sometimes it just gets crazy. Another friend that I knew when I was at Princeton, he was... Uh, Uh, This happened before I knew him, but um, he went through a four-month period of time where he came under this kind of teaching that if you just have faith and and start confessing it and make yourself certain of it, that it will happen. Well, he was near near legally blind, had very thick glasses, but in Jesus' name, he took off those glasses and threw them away. And now he starts telling everybody he's been healed uh, from his poor eyesight. The laws of physics still operate the way the laws of physics operate. And in the span of four months, he had two major car crashes, um, and it was by the grace of God he didn't have 200 because the guy turned into a Mr. Magoo when he wasn't having any glasses on uh, and um, he almost flunked out of Rice University where he was a, a student until he finally woke up to uh, the, the reality that he's just got bad eyesight and so far he hasn't been healed look at folks, Jesus never, Jesus never did this uh, when it comes to faith this fake it till you make it sort of uh, mindset uh, there's a place for that you know in some recovery groups, whatever but when it comes to faith we're not supposed to be faking it till, the, till we make it Jesus never asked anyone to pretend like something wasn't real that wasn't real. There's a time when he prayed for this guy, remember this, where he prays for this guy, and then he asked the guy, can you see? And the guy goes, not really. <laughs> I see people, but they're walking around like tree stumps. And Jesus doesn't say, well, you just got to claim it. You just got to be certain of it. You know, you already you walk in your healing. You know, he doesn't say that. He goes, okay, well, I guess we got to pray some more. And so he prays for, with him again, and then the man is, 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 is uh, fully healed. Faith is not psychological certainty. Here's what faith is. The Bible's definition. The only place it gives us a real definition is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, where it says, "Faith is the substance." And the word there is hypostasis. It means solidity. Remember that. The substance of things hoped for, the conviction, elegkos, of things not seen. This is what the ancients. This is what the ancients were commended for. Faith is, among other things, embracing a mental picture of something you hope for, and you embrace it like a substantial reality in your mind. You see it. It's concrete. hypostasis It's a solidity. And when you have that concrete vision, it produces a conviction inside of you that makes you move towards that vision. Faith is about concretely envisioning something about the future that we, that we believe is God's will, and getting a conviction about it and then pushing towards it. That's Faith but it's not psychological certainty that it's going to come to pass. Faith is vision, faith is conviction, but faith is not certainty. And if you read Hebrews 11, it becomes perfectly obvious that faith is not psychological certainty. Hebrews 11 is all about celebrating the heroes of the faith. So it talks about Abraham and and others who were just these heroes of the faith. And then in verse 13, the author says this, all these people, these heroes of the faith, That teaches what faith is really about. They were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them. And it's clearly not a physical seeing because they didn't receive them. But they saw in their mind the fulfillment of this promise. And they welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. The heroes of faith envisioned, they heard God's will, they envisioned God's will, and they had a passion about God's will in order to make sacrifices to see that will done on earth as it is in heaven. Abraham left his hometown and traveled into a distant country because that's what God told him to do. That's faith. Faith is having a vision that you push towards, that you move towards. But it obviously isn't psychological certainty. These people couldn't have been certain that they were going to get it in their lifetime because they didn't get it in their lifetime. Faith is simply holding a vision in your mind you believe is God's will, developing a conviction that motivates you to push towards that. If I'm praying for somebody in a wheelchair and I'm having faith as I'm praying, it doesn't mean I know they're going to get out of that wheelchair right then and there. How can I know that? I'm a human being and so are you. What it is for me to have faith is to see them in my mind, concretely, hypostasis, getting out of that wheelchair and glorifying God, running and dancing. I see that, and it creates in me a desire to see that happen in reality, a conviction, and so I press towards that. That's what prayer is. That's what faith is. I'm pressing towards that. But do I know that that's going to happen? I don't. I know that if this person walks with God, it's going to eventually happen because there won't be any wheelchairs in heaven. And they may receive the the, the answer to their faith and the answer to the prayer the way Abraham did, and that is after death. Uh, So eventually he's going to get the prayer answered, but I can't know, and no one can know whether it's going to happen right here and right now. Faith is vision. Faith is conviction. But faith is not psychological certainty. We're called to be people of faith. The just shall live by faith. But that doesn't mean we have secret certainties in our brain about things. We're just ordinary human beings when it comes to knowing what's going to happen uh, just around the bend. But we're called to have a, a vision and a conviction about the future. Have vision about what God's will being done in your life, in your body, in, in, your, in your spirit, in your mind. Have vision about God's will being done in your, in your families and in your neighborhoods and in your church and at your, your office. Get a picture of what God's will is towards that. And then you start praying towards that. And you start living towards that. Uh, you start manifesting the kingdom to bring God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That's the purpose of prayer. That's the purpose of our life. And that's the essential nature of faith. Faith is an extremely important variable in determining what comes to pass. In fact, I would argue that what you the, the, the movies you play in your head about the future are, is the main, most influential thing in deciding what's going to happen in your future. So it's extremely important. According to your faith, be it unto you. But it's not the only variable. There are still others. So let's move on to variable number four. Picking up speed, hopefully, as I go through this. Okay. I got 11 minutes here. All right. Free agents. We talked about this last week. I want to take it a little deeper. What people decide to do affects what comes to pass. Faith doesn't automatically collapse that. You can have faith. You can have a vision about your marriage being healed. You can have a conviction about your marriage being healed. You can push towards that and and pray towards that, and it's powerful and effective. But your spouse still has the power, the free will, to decide to leave you if that's what they want to do. Faith influences that. Prayer influences that. But it doesn't turn your spouse into a robot. There are other factors, other variables that affect what comes to pass. Now, someone said to me last week, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. God's all-powerful, and if God's all-powerful, he can take away free will when he wants to. So free will can't be a variable that affects what comes to pass. Now, let's think about this. Of course God has the power to revoke free will. He obviously does. But it's never a question of power. It's a question of what kind of universe did he create? Did he create a universe with free agents or not? If God revoked my free will whenever I was going to misuse it, use it in a way that he didn't like, then he clearly didn't give me free will. Think about it like this. If I have the power to go this way or that way, that's free will. I can choose this or I can choose that. God wants this, but I can choose that. If I have that power, then if God takes away my ability to do that, because he'd rather have me do this, then clearly he didn't give me the power to go this way or that way. By definition, if I have the power to go this way or that way, I can go that way even if God doesn't like it. So there's a, there's a sense of irrevocability built into free will. This is why humans can genuinely interfere with God's will for their life. We're not automatons. If we can only go this way, then we'd be automatons. We'd be robots. We wouldn't have free will. But we can go this way or, too bad, that way, if, if that's what we choose. So free will really affects what comes to pass. It doesn't mean that God can't influence free will or that you can't influence free will or that he can't bring other agents in to influence the free will. Influence is compatible with free will. I'm trying to influence you right now, but I'm not turning you into robots. But God will not just take away the free will because at this point in time it's very inconvenient. This is why people can genuinely interfere with God's will for their life, as we saw last week. Angels, we saw, also have free will, and therefore also have the capacity to interfere with God's will to some degree uh, in in certain circumstances. We saw that with Daniel chapter 10. God hears the prayer. God answers Daniel's prayer. Daniel has faith. God has the will. He sends the angel, but there's this prince of Persia who could go this way or that way, and he chose to go that way. He interferes with the reception of prayer. The the reception of uh, the angel, the the answer to to prayer. And you find other instances where, where Satan and other demonic beings interfere with God's will for people's life. So folks, we've got to remember that we live in a war zone and we pray in a war zone. There are powers all around who are pushing the world in a destructive direction. They want the opposite of God's will. There are powers all around that are are trying to corrupt the world to bring about sickness and disease and mayhem and broken relationships and broken hearts and and, and deformities and and wars and all sorts of violence and everything that God opposes, that's what they're trying to bring, bring about. And we have the power to partner with God to push back those forces and build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what what we live for. That's the purpose of our life. And prayer is a powerful way of doing it. So we push back on them. But our pushing back doesn't automatically collapse their ability to continue to try to do it. That's why we're involved in warfare and that's why prayer is not magic. And that's why prayer sometimes takes uh, a lot of persistence because it's not magic, which leads to a fifth variable. And if you've never heard this before, this will strike you as profoundly strange, but I assure you it is biblical. Another thing that affects the outcome of prayer is the strength and number of forces that you're up against. Uh, Think about this. There was a time where Jesus sent out his disciples and said, I give you authority over all things. And so they went out and they were able to uh, heal sickness and disease and free people from demonic oppression. And they came back rejoicing. Man, the spirits obey us. We can set people free all over the place. Next chapter, a father brings his demonized child to the disciples. I bet those disciples were like, no problem. Man, we've done a hundred of these. Let's kick it out right now. But this one wouldn't get kicked out. They couldn't cast the demon out of the kid. So they call on Jesus. Jesus comes and, and delivers the boy of his demonic oppression. And the disciples go, what's up with this? Well, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we cast this, this, this demon uh, out of the boy? And Jesus doesn't say, well, it wasn't God's will this time. It was God's will before, but not God's will this time. No, it's always God's will to be free from demonic oppression. Nor does Jesus say, well, you had more faith back then than you did now. He doesn't say that. What he says is, this kind of demon only comes out through prayer. And what he means there is through a lot of prayer. In fact, some of the ancient manuscripts add and fasting. And there apparently are different kinds of demons, different strengths. The weak ones you can kick out really easy. The strong ones, whoa, you've got to. There's a lot more at work here. And it takes a lot more persistence to get them out. The stronger the demon is, the harder it is to kick out. That's how things operate in the spiritual world. The forces that you're up against, the strength of the force you're up against is going to have something to do with how and when and if uh, your, your, your prayer comes to pass the way you're praying it. The number of forces you're up against also matters. There's a time when Jesus came to a guy uh, and he was demonized and um, uh, Jesus commands the demon to come out of the guy. And this is the only time in the Gospels where this happens, but the demon doesn't automatically come out of the guy. Rather, it tries to strike a deal with Jesus. And then Jesus says, what is your name? Because he, he senses that something else is going on here. It's like, what am I up against? And he gets his answer because the demonic presence responds by saying, we are legion, for we are many. And so there's something about the unity and the strength of this demonic uh, uh, force in this guy's life that made them harder to kick to kick out. It took a second go at it, even for Jesus, to get these demons out of this man. Look at it, folks, I think we sometimes just hyper-spiritualize the spiritual realm and we make it into a magical thing. The spiritual realm operates very much the way the physical realm does. On a physical level, we know that the number and the strength of whatever forces we're up against makes a difference. Uh, some rocks you can push up a hill easy because they're small, but the bigger the rock, the harder it is to push up. And the more rocks you got to push up, the, 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 the more people it takes to push them up. If you're playing a game of tug-of-war... The number and strength of the people that are on the other side is going to decide whether or not you're going to win, how you're going to win, if you're going to win, how long it's going to take, how much energy you're going to have to expend. That's how things operate in the physical realm. That's how things operate How things operate in the spiritual realm. So the strength and number of opposition factors into what happens in response to prayer. At the same time, variable number six, the strength and number of support on your side factors into the uh, outcome of prayer. Jesus says, If two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Okay, now, pause for a moment. If you're into formulas, here you go. (laughs) Here's the secret. If we have two or three Uh, Apparently, individual prayer doesn't count for anything because if two or three, then Jesus is there among them and we can ask for anything, he says, and it will be given to us. Ho, ho. So how about, I got an idea, it's brilliant. How about two of us or three of us get together and let's pray for peace in the Middle East by midnight tonight. (laughs) All he says anything. See, here we have to remember what we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get it. Jesus, like all first century Jews, spoke oftentimes in hyperbole. They state things in an extreme way and often without any qualification uh, in an exaggerated way to, to, to put an emphasis to it. Jesus is not giving a magical formula here, but what he is saying is there's power in numbers. There's a unique authority and power that comes in numbers. When, when people get together and agree and pray together, now you, you, you've exponentially increased the force of your prayer. This is why you find throughout the Bible, God sometimes has and leaders have, sometimes bring people together to pray. Paul frequently asks his congregations uh, in the epistles, hey, will you pray for us? And we all intuitively, who have been in the kingdom for any length of time, we know this intuitively. Um, uh, when something's important to us, we ask people to join us in praying, which would make no sense whatsoever unless... There's an increased power to the number of people who are praying. There's power in numbers. Uh, And that's another variable that affects what comes to pass. The stronger the force you're up against, the stronger the force and the more forces you need on your side. This is how things operate in the spiritual realm because it's not that different from the physical realm. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, God hears Daniel's prayer. God answers the prayer. He dispatches the angel. But a stronger fallen angel this prince of Persia in Daniel 10, interferes and is able to detain the messenger for 21 days. So then God calls an even stronger angel, and the text makes a point of this, the chief of the, the princes, uh, Michael the archangel, he brings him over to free this messenger up. So apparently the Michael could overpower the prince of Persia. So the angel shows up to Daniel and delivers the message, but then he says, I'd love to chat, but i got to return back to the fight because, and now the spiritual realm gets into the numbers game. The prince of Greece, this other demonic power, has joined in this spiritual warfare fight. So this angel was needed to go back and join that battle. Bizarre! I know it's bizarre, but the world is bizarre. But it operates in the spiritual realm just like it does in the physical realm. The number and strength of the forces for and against goes into the mix of all the variables that affect what happens in response to prayer. And what we've got to notice is this. If Daniel hadn't been told by the messenger what was going on, in the spiritual realm, Daniel would not have had a clue as to why it took 21 days for the prayer to be answered and to why, why the angel shows up for eight seconds and then disappears. Uh, it would have been just totally baffling to him. And no doubt there would have been people saying, well, God's time is the right timing. he just got accepted. And others would be saying, well, Daniel, you just didn't have enough faith to get it answered right on time when you first started and didn't have enough faith to keep the angel around. And both would have been totally wrong. What Daniel knows is that there's a warfare going on, which is normally invisible to to human beings, but that's why it was 21 days rather rather than the first day, and that's why the angel had to disappear so quick. What we've got to know is this. We are very much in the position of Daniel without the revelation, which is why things seem so arbitrary and so random to us. When prayer is answered, how it's answered, the power prayer has, it seems so random. We don't know ordinarily how strong and how many are the forces that we're up against. We normally can't know how strong and how many angels are fighting on our side. We can can hardly ever know the irrevocable effects of decisions that have been made throughout history and how they bear on the situation that we find ourselves in. But we do know that they have ongoing effects. We're still living under the effect of Adam and Eve's decision. Uh, Decisions have ripple effects, and they affect what comes to pass. But we can know hardly any of that. We usually don't know how many people are praying for the thing that we're praying for and how strong their faith is as they're praying for that, how persistent they are as they're praying for that. We can't know that. But all those things affect... What comes to pass in response to prayer? We usually don't know. In fact, we can never know how the necessary laws of nature and the stability of the world factors into what comes to pass in response to prayer. And we can never know the full picture of what's going on in this world. We can never see what God sees. And God sees the full picture, and that affects what's going to go on in our particular little locale because everything is interrelated. Which all goes to show this. We don't know anything. We're massively ignorant. We see less than one, one trillionth of 1% of physical reality, let alone spiritual reality. And we've just got to know what we don't know, and what we don't know is almost everything. <laughs> Which is why we can't know why Susie got healed and Johnny died. But see, knowing what we don't know is profoundly important. The most important thing to know is what you don't know. Because if you know what you don't know, you don't get sucked into formulas that give a bad picture of God and indict people. If you know what you don't know, you get comfortable saying, I don't know. Three very, very important uh, words in our language. We swim in in an infinite sea of unknowability. What we call things we know is simply a little parameter, a little oasis of pseudo-knowledge floating in a sea of mystery. (laughs) Honestly, honestly. We can't figure out, as I said last week, why there's a seven-second interval between two cars. We think we have an explanation when we find out what the first driver, and what the second driver were are doing on the road. But as I showed last week, that doesn't begin to answer the question. We would have to know the entire history of the universe, physical and spiritual, to be able to answer that simple question. We swim in an infinite sea of unknowability and mystery. So get comfortable saying, I don't know. But in this sea of mystery, there's four things we've got to know, and I'll cover them in one minute. Otherwise, I'm gonna be in big trouble tomorrow. Tell Children's Church one minute, one minute. <laughs> okay, well I'm saying one minute here. Okay, look at here's what you got to know. Know that God looks like Jesus Christ and is on the side of good. Lock that in. Know that. If you got that down, you got enough. Uh, God's not a scorpion-giving God. He's an egg-giving God. He's he's a, he's a Christ-giving God. He comes and gives himself for us. He's always on the side of good. Every good gift comes from the Father above. Thank God for every good thing in your life. Thank the people who delivered it as well, but it ultimately goes back to God. Number two, we're called to have vision and conviction, which is faith, as we push towards the future. We don't have to know very much at all. What we've got to know is God is good, and here's his will for my marriage, for my my, 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 my kids, for my neighborhood, for my church, for whatever ministry he calls you to. Get a vision of that, get a conviction about that, and push towards it. What you've got to know, number three, is this. Prayer is a powerful and effective way of pushing. Your life is as well. Every kingdom act you do is pushing against the kingdom of darkness and expanding the kingdom of God. But prayer is powerful and effective. You can't usually see the cause and effect relationship between how you prayed and the increase of the kingdom in the world. So it takes faith to do this, but know on the authority of God's word that every conversation you have with God is powerful and effective. Yes, there's a lot of variables, I just skimmed the surface today, that affect, that go into the mix, and so we can't always connect the dots. Thank God those times we can. But on faith, take it that you're talking to God is very, very important. And number four, it's always good to remind ourselves that we're called to trust that despite all the uncertainties we face in the world, and there they are massive, God's love will in the end triumph over evil. And when God's love triumphs over evil, then we will see how every kingdom push we made through prayer and through our life contributed to that victory, and it was worth it. We don't know much, but if you know this, you're okay. Just keep your eyes focused on this and walk humbly, confessing your massive ignorance about everything else. Let me ask the Holy Spirit to quickly seal this prayer in our hearts as we're dismissed. And I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever that you would like to have prayed for, feel feel free to come up here. I encourage you to, because prayer is powerful and effective. Holy Spirit. I know this is new to some people, Lord. Uh, would you just activate our minds to help us get our minds around this uh, and and to know what we don't know? Help us, Lord God, to be people who walk humbly and don't feel like we need to be know-it-alls. Help us, Lord. For those who have had judgments about you because of the theology they were given and they got a scorpion instead of an egg and they blamed you. And for others, God, who blamed themselves because they got that other teaching that faith is the only variable. Lord, set them free. Set them free and accept the mystery and therefore not blame you or blame themselves. And Father, I pray that we would be, as we leave this place, a a people who trust in prayer and have vision and faith. Give us your heart to envision for our family, our marriage, our kids, our neighborhood, our workplace, and everything else that we're called to, Lord. Help us to get that vision and to press towards it in our prayer and with our life. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. <laughs> God bless you guys. Go out and vision the future and build the kingdom.